Welcome to Eucharist Podcast, where we're exploring what it looks like for a community of disciples to live all of life in reference to Christ. Welcome back to the Eucharist Podcast. I'm Father Joshua. I'm Father Ryan. And today we're going to be continuing our mini-series of Anglican Journeys of the staff of Eucharist Church. And so this week, it's your your turn, Ryan. All right. All right. So let's get into it. Um, tell us about yourself. Like, where did you grow up? How did you come to know Christ? Uh, I grew up in Northern California um, in Placerville near Sacramento, and it's kind of halfway between Sacramento and Lake Tahoe. It's a small town in the foothills, um, and a beautiful place, great community. Uh, I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up, uh, it was particularly, it was Seventh-day Adventist. Um, so a lot of my relatives, my parents, um, brothers at that time were, were Seventh-day Adventists. I went to Seventh-day Adventist schools. Some people don't know this, but the Seventh-day Adventist church has a fairly extensive education network uh, all around the world, actually. I think it's the second largest uh, private school system behind the Roman Catholic Church, actually. Oh, wow. uh, but anyway, I went um, kindergarten through 10th grade at a little school in uh, Placerville, and then the school ended at 10th grade, and so I had to go somewhere for 11th and 12th grade, and I went to a boarding, a, a 7th-day Adventist boarding high school down near Santa Cruz area yeah. and had a really marvelous experience with that. Um, I was baptized when I was like 11, and uh, I really had uh, quite a wonderful experience growing up in the Seventh-day Adventist church in many ways. It was a very tight social world and um, probably experienced some degree of of isolation within that. Um, Growing up, we we kind of referred to people who were not part of the Adventist world as non-Adventists, heathens of some sort, (laughs) but... uh, (laughs) But anyway, it was yeah, it was a great great experience for the most part. I went to Seventh Avenue colleges, studied theology. Um, I had this strong desire to to go into ministry, kind of erupt in my life of my senior year of high school. I thought I was going to be a doctor, and through a, a series of events, none of them dramatic, but through but but had a lot of gravity for me. Mm. I began to reshift my focus towards towards ministry. What, what kind of doctor did you want to be? I was thinking about being an orthopedist uh, when I was right. younger. I in uh, junior high and high school, I wanted to be a, a cardiologist. Oh wow, that's and then chiropractor intense. when I realized I didn't have a stomach for blood. <laughs> I saw my first yeah. like video of a surgery, and I was like, uh, "Yep, nope." Yeah, I had a similar experience in high school where I, we went to visit a cadaver. Uh, it was an AMP mm. class, and we went in there, and I just like got queasy, and it was like one of those moments in that senior year where I was like, Ugh, "Maybe medicine isn't what I'm really drawn towards." Maybe. There's other ways to to have a beautiful way of serving God, and et cetera. Anyway, um, so in college, I took a year out between my sophomore junior year. I was a youth pastor at a church in Las Vegas and mm. um, kind of tried out ministry. Hadn't really been in a formal ministry role before, although I'd done some summer camp uh, mm-hmm. counseling and stuff like that. And I just found myself really drawn more and more to it. Meanwhile, I was also really drawn towards expressions of Christianity that were outside of what I had personally experienced. Um, part of my call to ministry or my, my drawing towards the ministry had been a book um, written by Bill Hybels, mm. uh, who some of you may know as the, um, the sort of founder of the seeker-sensitive movement. And 
uh, I, the book I read by him was called Rediscovering Church, and it, it really upended my world. I was like, I'd never seen a church that was so, um, had so much ministry, so robust, had so many uh, ways of reaching into the community. And it, it was, it gave me a, um, a kind of a gripping sense that this is where I wanted to invest my life. So during that season, I um, visited Willow Creek and I was really drawn towards that. And as I was beginning to read more in the evangelical world, I had more and more questions about my Seventh-day Adventist upbringing and trying to, to make sense of the theology. And so I graduated from college. I went to work at a church in Portland, Oregon, where I was a, an associate pastor or assistant pastor, really, just a, a kind of an intern. And again, was working with the youth, but also doing some teaching in the adult discipleship, et cetera. And I began to have this list of questions growing about how to make sense theologically of where I was. And um, it basically came down to uh, a series of questions about how to interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. And Mm -hmm. um, I remember wrestling many, many hours um, with these questions um, and then coming to an intellectual conclusion that I could not continue in the Seventh-day Adventist uh, denomination because I couldn't make sense of the theology in light of what I was understanding in the scripture. And I, that was very painful for my family. It was a very painful season for me to try to walk away from this community that had, had formed me um, without even knowing what I was going towards. And uh, I remember that the denominational leadership had sort of placed me on a the pastor track where I would have gone to their seminary and they would have paid for it. I would have had a stipend there and had basically lifelong employment within this denomination. Mm-hmm. And to walk away from all those things was a little scary, um, particularly because I had grown up in such an isolated, very insulated um, Seventh-day Adventist world. Um, so there was a number of things that happened, but kind of at the big picture level, I... I went to, uh, I decided to go to Fuller Seminary in Southern California. So I Mm. resigned from my position at the Seventh-day Adventist Church and then headed down to Fuller Seminary. And um, I really had no idea what I was looking for exactly other than that I knew that I was basically post-Seventh-day Adventist at that point. And I was like, I wonder if the evangelical world has some of the resources I'm looking for. And I kind of came in thinking that I had like, thought my theological questions out at that point, and I was just going to figure out practically how to do ministry better, how to plant an evangelical church of some kind. And and then when I got to seminary, I recognized several things. First of all, I was socially, I was very much still bound up in the Seventh-day Adventist subculture. And secondly, that in fact, I was just on the beginning edge of my theological Hmm. uh, learning. And... Uh, So rather than seminary being a place where I kind of like a ministry finishing school where you kind of got like some skills to Mm -hmm. go out and to plant a church, it was where I started to dive even deeper into theology. Nice. So anyway, at that time, I I started reading N.T. Wright. Um, Some people may know who that is. He's an Anglican scholar, um, one of the preeminent, if not the most famous biblical uh, scholar in the world right now. Um, And... I, I was had classes where I had to do my my reading. It was required reading, but I was so engaged by these this theological learning that I was doing that I would 
finish my re uh, required reading and then I'd dive into reading N.T. Wright or I'd read mm. someone else. And, um, and I had to say that I found that because I came into seminary having had a denominational crisis already, I had a, a lot more, um, how do I say this, a lot more skin in the game with regard to the questions about theology and about where mm. I was going. A lot of my classmates were wonderful people, but I didn't see the sort of vigorous intensity of wanting to learn and grow that yeah. that I felt personally. So going to Fuller, having come out of a really structured denomination, uh, did you feel like I need to find another denomination or how, how did that affect your time in seminary? Because I know most seminary students now don't give much thought to their uh, denominational attachments yeah. unless they came into it with with skim in the game or were sent by a specific church. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I was looking at all for a new denominational home. I kind of felt like denominations might have been the problem mm. um, and that um, having come out of, like you said, a very structured environment, um, even though it wasn't, no one did me wrong, there was no personal loss of uh, relationship or something like that that led to this. Theologically, I just felt like, man, I'd gotten, just got came out of a kind of a corner and I didn't really want to be put in another one. Nobody puts Ryan Jones in the corner. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> uh, so, so I was basically interested in the evangelical world and the non-denominational label. Again, still drinking from the Willow Creek seeker stuff. So how did that... So you have the Willow Creek on one side, but now you're starting to read N.T. Wright, which in some aspects is kind of like an atomic bomb on some aspects of like traditionally held or kind of pop culture, pop Christian yeah. ideas or kind of the, the, sh the shallow veneer of cultural Christianity. He kind of mm -hmm. digs deeper into first century Ju Judaism and theological kind of cohesiveness that, you know, how, so how, how is that integrating? So you have Willow Creek kind of, you know, seeker sensitive, seeker friendly, um, mega church model. And then you have stuff from M.T. Wright digging into the depths of the gospel and mm -hmm. what it, you know, yeah. How, how did that well, kind of integrate for you? Well, I think partly what I was realizing and what I have been realizing for most of my adult life is that though I knew of and loved Jesus at some level and was a Christian, was baptized at 11, I um, didn't really understand very well what it meant to be a Christian. Uh, I had been immersed in a world with biblical language, but didn't have models for actually understanding what the Bible was or what it was for. Um, and so as I'm like at seminary thinking I know things, I'm actually deconstructing certain aspects of my faith while I'm constructing. It's kind of like having like, you know, a crane building, but also like a demolition crew on the same building site at the same, same mm -hmm. time. So uh, I was deconstructing certain parts of my faith, but, but constructing from the ground up whole other sections. And part of what I was learning was that I never got a, I wasn't given in my early Christian formation a coherent model for understanding the Bible, particularly in connection with what emerges in the early church. Like I just mm. didn't have any way of putting mm. together how do we get from Judaism to Jesus to Paul and the early church and then into the, the whole church story. I just, I couldn't put yeah. it together. Because that's something that people who aren't familiar with the Seventh-day Adventist tradition they kind of, it's kind of a one-to-one -one correlation for the most part. You just kind of bring the Old Testament into the New in its totality without much... Yeah, there's a lot of, there's an emphasis on continuity between Old and New Testament, which I don't d dismiss. Actually, there's a lot of important continuities, but 
the art, ability to articulate what is discontinuous or how maybe to put it more positively how jesus is the culmination mm. and the climax of god's revelation wasn't clear to me and then how to connect that to the church was even less clear to me mm -hmm. um so i don't think what i experience is too foreign from what a lot of christians experience that they just don't have good interpretive lenses or models theological models to hold this all together yeah but for me um, again, I was having to kind of constantly justify to myself and to family members and friends why I had make this, made this transition out of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and then what that meant and where I was going. So if I could fast forward a little, I basically went through my three and a half years of seminary. I spent, um, I, I couldn't figure out where to go to church, I should say, during that time. Like mm. I was at a, um, I was at kind of a, a seeker-sensitive church for a little bit. Then I realized that just wasn't working for me. Like I found it hollow and not very, and it didn't, it didn't, uh, it didn't grab my heart and pull me in. So it was more the vision for that is what was appealing to you, but actually the practice of it was a, it just found lacking. Yeah, it fell flat for me, and it felt very hollow, very performancey, and so then I ended up going to a church, a wonderful church that um, was kind of, I don't know how to say it. It wasn't flashy, had a lot of talented people. The preaching actually wasn't that great. Uh, music was good there, but uh, it it had a more robust familial experience to it, so I started being mm. drawn towards that. But then I that didn't end up working for me too, and so I bounced to a, a friend was um, pastoring at a Presbyterian church, a PCUSA church, and I thought, well, I'll see what that's about. So I went to that, and that was my first encounter with a kind of liturgical worship, actually. Where mm. I mean, I had visited a couple places before that in my life, but that was so I spent about a year and a half, I think, in that in that church, which was. For in every other way, it was a very dull experience for church. Like there was nothing really happening in the church. I wasn't really involved, but I would sit through the liturgy, and the liturgy was was structuring me, restructuring me in some ways. And I remember being profoundly impacted, particularly by the fact that we took time every week to confess our sins as part of the service. That we'd stop, mm. there'd be silence, prayer yeah. of confession. I had never been in a church that did that, and it and that was where I felt like I was really meeting God during that season. Anyway, all right. So fast forward, I went to U to Kenya for four months. I was a, worked as a, a chaplain in a hospital there as part of a training, extension of my seminary training, and um, I visited a lot of churches. I visited the Anglican Church in Kenya, oh. uh, which was, again, first time in really in an Anglican setting. That was interesting. Um, uh, but I was all over the board. I was visiting um, Pentecostal churches, Evangelical churches, the Catholic Church even there. Um, I came back and I knew that I was going to be planting a church in San Francisco, which is a big long story, which I won't go into. But I moved here to San Francisco. Some friends came to join me, and I didn't know anybody else in the city. And we were trying to figure out how do we plant a church from literally from nothing, from the ground up, with basically no support, basically nothing. And so we were left to create our own model of church the whole time. <laughs> and as we did that, uh, we started with what we thought was sort of like the um, like the beginning place of just studying the Bible with some people. And it's tried to add in components. And all along the way, my consistent experience, which I think echoes some of your experience, Joshua, was that <laughs> mm -hmm. we would try to create a model or a, you could think of it like a ministry wheel. Yeah. Um, and then recognize after we had created this that it was an inferior version of a wheel that the church had created 
1800 years ago or 2000 mm. years ago or 1500 years ago. And so people would come to me and they'd say, you know, hey, so what do you guys think about X, Y, or Z, you know, theologically? And I'd be like, mm, I don't know, it's a good question. And I'd go on Amazon, order four books, you know, that were about the topic, try to crash through them in a couple of weeks so that I could form an articulate, intelligent opinion about a particular theology or doctrine or whatever. Um, so it was like a very, very steep learning curve. And um, we kind of thought we were going to build our church from San Francisco backwards. And we kept recognizing that we were confusing people a lot in that process, mm. uh, including ourselves. And so flesh that out a little bit. That, that's interesting. Well, I think we, we wanted really hard to, we tried really hard to be contextual. So how do we think about Christian language in terms of the language of the city? So we started neutering out all the language of, that is distinct to Christianity. Like I remember mm. even referring to myself at one point as like a spiritual consultant <laughs> rather than a pastor. I was like, well, I'm kind of like a spiritual, I was explaining to somebody one time, I'm, I'm, I'm like a consultant for spirituality. And, and then the person kind of looked at me like, like, what are you talking about? And as I, the more I kept trying to explain it, the more confused they got. And I finally realized that I, like after months of doing this sort of thing in many areas of ministry, that I was looking more and more like new agey to people yeah. rather than Christian. Even though my convictions were deeply Christian, I had no structures and no... A spiritual architect, yeah. you know, building... Seriously, yeah. I use that language too, right? Exactly. Yeah. Instead of a church planner, I was as an architect a, of a community. A cultural, you yes. know, uh, disruptive innovator. And I'm a spiritual entrepreneur. Exactly. Right? That was the stuff <laughs> we were doing. And then we would get together and have these meetings, which we never called church and... Um, Little by These little, powwows. yeah. Little by little, actually, it was my it was some of my seeking friends who they would tell me. Like I remember one of my friend particularly told me one time. She's like, "Hey, I'm." She kind of came from like a, a nominal back, Catholic background, and she told me one time. She said, "You know, I've been thinking about kind of thinking getting back into faith. I've been thinking about Christianity again." And I was like, "Awesome!" You know, uh, I kind of affirmed her, and then a few weeks later, I ran into her, and she was like. She's a good friend of mine. I actually started a nonprofit with her for uh, international development stuff that we were doing at that time. And she came back to me a few weeks later and she said, well, I did it. I, I'm starting to explore uh, Christianity again. And she's like, I went to church. And I was like, what? Because she's <laughs> like my good friend. She knew that we had these groups that met every week that were yeah. like studying the Bible. But somehow or another, she didn't identify that what we were doing was actually Christianity or um, like legitimate church mm. oh, uh, and so it was through those kind of conversations that i realized well we need to actually have recognizable forms for people of what christianity is mm. maybe there are reasons why the church emerged in the way that it did after asking so many questions it's nice to have at least some answers yeah <laughs> or, or some structure to hold <laughs> or them, structure right? yeah yeah so anyway that that stuff was going on meanwhile also i was trying to articulate within a a deeply post-christian context here in san francisco our notion of authority. Like, why am I a Christian? Why do I trust Jesus with my life? Um, where does the Bible fit into all this? And um, evangelicals have lots of quick answers for those, those things that when you press into them, sometimes there's not much behind it. And I remember reading, this is like probably eight or nine years ago now, I read a book when I first moved to the city here, uh, and the title was uh, A High View of Scripture, question mark. And it was like an evangelical book about the process of putting together the canon of scripture. Um, and I remember reading that book and it stunned me to learn 
that the first time you have the entire New Testament um, list of books that we consider the New Testament in one list without any other extras in there and with none missing is the year 367 with Athanasius' festal letter. That's historically, it's the first time we have a record of that. Maybe it happened a little before that, but there's no record of it before that. And I remember the question popped into my head immediately, how did the church uh, exist for more than 300 years without a New Testament canon? Um, but even if you take a very early date for the canon, even the most like uh, aggressively conservative scholar would say like late second century, how did it last 150 years without, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. for me, I was like, imagine the church emerging out of the Bible. And all of a sudden it clicked in my mind. I remember this moment and the thought that hit me was, and now I understand why there are Catholics. <laughs> that was my thought. Because I'm like, yeah. I'm like, oh, because the church preceded the New Testament. The Catholics and then the bearded Catholics in the East somewhere, right? Those, yeah, I don't know about those guys, right? Um, so I just sat on that for a long time. And I remember mm. thinking, I, I need to rethink my understanding of authority and place of scripture in mm. relationship to how the church emerged. Mm -hmm. Because my story about that is like, there's like Jesus in the Bible, um, but I don't have that big gap in there. You know, like I, wh how did the church even get started? It, not to mention the fact that obviously Paul wasn't even writing the first New Testament letter, probably around the year 50. Uh, mm. uh, but the church has already been in existence for 20 years at that point, you know, like, so anyway, these things are working on me. Um, then, uh, to make a long story short about that whole experience, the, the longer that we tried to do a church in the city here, the more we became, we looked like a church and a historic, historic looking church. We started to add in some things like liturgy and little by little we were adding components. I remember we did a whole teaching series on what is the Nicene Creed? Why does it matter? Went mm. through every every line of the creed and and preached about that, and that was so deeply grounding for me. Um, and then, in the middle of all this, this little um, little church plant that that I had helped start ended up in total crisis over the issue of authority, over the issue of how do we understand the place of. Um, what shapes our theology, what shapes our practice as mm. Christians. And uh, painfully, it was over what a lot of churches have struggled with, over the issues of sexuality. Mm -hmm. And um, and at that point, that that rift that happened in our leadership was really um, exposed the lack of an understanding, a lack of a grounding of a place for what is authority and where does it play into this? So, yeah. so like the sexuality issue is more of a symptom of a more systemic issue of authority and also a vision of what Christianity is and is yeah. meant to be, right? Because that's yeah, kind that of much. these things. It's not just about sexuality. It's about like, well, how do we get those definitions and yeah. what is the church and how do we interact with culture and yeah. and those things, right? In, in every era, there are there are theological or, or life issues that emerge that expose the, the weakness in the theology of the church at that time. And mm -hmm. you know, in the, the third and fourth, fifth centuries, it was about Christology and the Trinity and trying to articulate who is God and how do we talk about that rightly um, and other issues. It's been icons or it's, you know, you name the issue in the, in the reformation, there was a whole set of issues that were going on there. And, and then in our era, I, I really think one of these major issues is, is sexuality is that's, that's where our culture is hitting the, the message of the gospel. And there's something happening there. There's a disconnect. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that I don't need to go into that, but all that 
it, it further deepened my sense that um, I needed a place to ground my my own faith personally that wasn't as recent as the the newest um, you know, the, the newest pop, uh, pop theology that came out or the the newest sermon series from some church. I, I really long for depth and. Um, my answer to that previously had been to teach people rigorous theology as an intellectual exercise. Mm-hmm. So the more that I did that, though, the, what I discovered was that I sent people up into their, their brains, and the experience of Christianity in their hearts was, was often lacking. And what it did is it said that the smartest people were the people who should be the authorities, the people who mm. had read the most theology books, for instance. And... And of course, you know, if you know anything about theology, you can find hundreds and thousands of books on, you know, that, that push different directions theologically. It's not like and, one and, yeah. coherent direction. And with intellectual things, I mean, as we know in philosophy, you can have a valid argument that's incorrect. That's right. Or a sound argument that is untrue. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So anyway, these things are happening at the same time that, the, that, you know, the church is struggling in some ways. And I'm continuing to learn and grow myself and I'm desiring to be anchored in the, the tradition. I'm desiring to be connected um, to the broader church. At this moment when we're in, in crisis as a church, I'm also like, man, I wish I had a bishop so bad right now. I just mm. wish I had somebody I could turn to who could help us, who could sort some of this out, who could echo the, the long history of the church on these things. And so all these things are, are, are driving me towards um, the great tradition, as I, as I refer to it as, which is... The if you if you take the, the story of the church all the way back, that's what we think of as the great tradition: the, the Roman Catholic, the mm-hmm. East Orthodox, the the, the Vincentian, like what the church said with one voice when it was united. That's right. You know. Yeah, yeah, the, the unbroken church of the first thousand years kind mm-hmm. of thing. So I'm I this time I I'm drinking deeply from you know all these historical waters, and it just emerges clearer and clearer. I I personally, for the integrity of my own faith have to anchor myself in the, the historic church in some way. Mm. And I, as a leader, I felt uncomfortable taking on any mantle of authority myself without being under an authority. And that's mm-hmm. why I was like, I need to be under the authority of Scripture, but under the authority of how the Scripture has been held within the tradition mm-hmm. and uh, under the authority of a bishop or somebody who has been you know, in continuity with the church historically. So anyway, these things were drawing me more and more towards the Anglican uh, the Anglican way. Now, why specifically the Anglican and not uh, the, the Roman Catholic or if you were familiar with the Orthodox Church at the time? Yeah, I, I, I considered those. And I was reading broadly across these um, these traditions. And uh, what resonated most with me was what, what was in, held in common with, with them all rather than the particularities of each of those branches. Mm-hmm. Um, I went through a season where I, I literally strongly considered the Roman Catholic Church, thinking about, uh, I had to ask the question, why wouldn't I become Catholic? And I ran into some theological issues. I remember reading through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and turning down pages where I had questions on stuff, where I was like, I don't know if this resonates with, say, what the East says or what other traditional Christians have thought mm. of, um, or how they make this case from Scripture. I remember running into stuff about uh particularities of Mary's role or the papal infallibility. And I was like, mm, I don't know if I can do that. You know, like I understand a lot of 
the Catholic impulse and it makes a lot of sense to me and it resonates with me. So there's a lot that I share with that. But um, also the Roman Catholic Church is wildly diverse itself. You know, I mean, you'll find every, every position under, <laughs> under heaven in that, in that church. And I had never been drawn to the Roman Catholic Church culturally uh, speaking, but I was drawn to its historicity and its depth and mm -hmm. um, the robust thinking and intellectual tradition it, it brought with so it. So you kind well. of, you love their Catholicity, but you wanted to be Catholic without being Roman. <laughs> I think that was, that's probably true. Yeah. And then also, you know, I was um, thinking about whether uh, I thought some of the particularities they require, like, do, do I, did I really think that priestly celibacy was a, an absolute and didn't really have a conviction on that actually and so the, I think the Catholic Church has in many ways solidified or or uh, has become very highly structured and um, is very particular about certain things that I feel like well maybe there's a little more mystery or room there um, and so the Eastern Church the, the the Orthodox Church became a fascination for me I was really dr drawn towards the theology of the Orthodox Church that it felt like there was more room for mystery in that. I felt like there mm. was uh, more of a of an interest in the early church fathers rather than the scholastic arguments that came out of, say, Aquinas and things like yeah. that. I was more drawn towards the early church fathers. Um, but what I wasn't drawn to about the Orthodox world was that it felt like, in many ways, to be Orthodox meant that you had to be Greek or Russian, mm. or, you know, or or some cultural. You had to you had to buy into a particular. Um, cultural um, model mm. in addition to a theological model. And so Anglicanism kept coming back up for me because Anglicanism, it felt like within the Anglican world, I could be theologically capital O Orthodox. Like I could think like an Orthodox Christian, which mm -hmm. I was really drawn towards. I could have the the depth and the history and the and in some sense of the Catholicity of the Roman, the Roman church, but I could also be on mission in the West where I am here in a model mm. that felt like it fit more closely with the culture yeah. and, and the way that I understand things. And you didn't have to curse your roots either. Didn't have to curse my roots, that's true, yeah. Uh, and also maybe another piece too is that with with both the Catholic and the Orthodox world, I wasn't welcome at the table, at the communion table there. Um, again, they have good reasons for that and I understand them. But I felt like in the light of the brokenness of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church and that it's fragmented into so many pieces. It just, I couldn't with integrity say that we, my church would withhold from other people who are baptized, sincere, deep Christians. And I think I yeah. like the fact that the Anglican church, though it does practice a fenced table and that it says you need to be a baptized um, Christian who has Jesus as Lord and desires to live in reconciliation with others. It doesn't go beyond that and say you need to be Anglican uh, to be, which to me also still resonates with the early church too because we're talking about you know that's kind of what the rules were for the table early on <laughs> yeah yeah well i mean and yeah again that's part of what drew me to this is i was like you know i didn't i didn't become anglican because i thought it was the one true church i had already been in that that was the seventh day Adventist world i came from yeah. that claimed that and i knew that there was something deeply wrong with that claim and Similarly, the Roman Church and the Orthodox Church can't claim that either because they both have equal claims on history, and yet they're fragmented, they're broken from each other, they're unreconciled. Mm. So I wasn't looking for a perfect place. I was looking for an, an approximate place where 
I could be ecumenical. I could be in relationship with other Christians. I could be in a place where I could draw people towards unity. Mm-hmm. And I felt like the Anglican Church, with all its problems, which it has plenty, it uh, it didn't pretend to be the perfect church. I mean, the laughable part, the sad part, is that it comes out of a divorce or you know a failed annulment, uh, essentially. Um, with, but of course, that's not the full story. The, the full story, the, the English Christianity, goes way back to the second century, where there's been Christians in England mm. uh, cultivating a particular way of being Christian. So anyway, I was really drawn towards that overlap of, okay, if church unity, if there was ever church reunion between all the branches of Christianity, what would it look like? I think it would look like something close to Anglicanism with its Episcopal structure of having bishops, priests, and deacons, its high view of scripture, its high view of tradition, its view of the creeds, um, its, um, yeah, and its robust sense of mission as well, mm-hmm. too. So those things really drew me into the... Yeah. So even though we're not there, it seems to have the most Catholic bandwidth in a way, or it's, yeah, it, it's bandwidth is bigger. Yeah, Catholic as in from the whole, right? From yeah, because I mean, as we said in my in my journey, I I look to the Christian East and I'm like, man, this church is apostolic, mm-hmm. but it's not Catholic. It's mm-hmm. not universal. It's really among Slavics and Greeks and a couple other people groups. It hasn't yeah. really gone global. And then you look at the Roman Catholic Church, and man, it's global. Yeah. But it's kind of ironic that it's the Roman Catholic Church. It has, mm-hmm. it's it's not really um, apostolic in some ways. I mean, it yeah. is in others, but if you know what I mean, like yeah. there's been a lot of innovation which may have departed from some of the original, you know, fathers yeah. in some ways. And so you see churches that are kind of, they know their lane really well, but are claiming the whole road. Yeah. And the Anglican Church, I thought, was like, well, we don't. <laughs> we have a bandwidth for saying we're not there yet yeah. and we want to be yeah. like of saying that we haven't already arrived. It kind of embraces in a real way, but a hopeful way, the fragmentation of, of the Christian witness in the world. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. yeah. And I like that the, yeah, I think it's Archbishop Michael Ramsey back in the day said mm-hmm. that Anglicanism at its best is the handmaiden of unity and that he longed for the time when the, the Anglican church, as in a label, Anglican, disappeared. That no longer needed to be. And so you see this in, like, Leslie Newbegin's ministry in, in, in Church of South India, where they brought together churches, and it mm-hmm. looks more Anglican, actually. Yeah. So anyway, th- th- that's a lot of that part. Or, or even just with that, like, if you're looking at the seat of global Anglicanism now is not among Anglos. Yeah. It's like an Afro-Orthodox church that's yeah. going on. Yeah. You know, I mean, we don't have language for it yet, but it, it's yeah, people, interesting. People don't know that the average... <laughs> Anglican and the Anglican communion is, is like a, you know, a young female African, right? Like yeah. that's like that. If you had to take the, sort of the the average Anglican, yeah. Anyway, so a couple of things about Anglicanism that that really drew me to was the three stream approach. So there's the evangelical, the charismatic, and the sacramental traditions that are all important streams to the experience of being a Christian. And Anglicanism can hold all three together in a unique way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for me, the longer I've been a Christian, the more important, um, the, the, the added, the piece that was completely absent early on for me, but which has emerged as being so important, has been the sacramental piece of mm-hmm. being um, anchored in the incarnation of Christ. And as the extension of that through the sacraments, mm-hmm. what, the, the meaning, what that means for the church, what that means for my ecclesiology and, and how we actually carry out the mission of Christ here in a place like San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So I'm so grateful to be in a sacramental uh, communion and and also be in a place where we can talk about the gifts of the Spirit and about 
healing and prophecy and things like that that fit within that that healthy space of mm. the sacramental liturgical tradition and then also to have a very high view of the scriptures and preaching the gospel and doing mission so i just i just love that those can hold hold together and again i, I say that knowing that the anglican world has so many challenges and so many problems and there's so much diversity which can be a strength but is also a tremendous liability in many ways because some mm. of the diversity is outside the bounds of of what is orthodox Christianity. That's wonderful. So you kind of got into, you know, what you found is your, what you have enjoyed about being Anglican and how it's kind of ministered to your soul. Um, I think just a closing question, if you were to go back to um, yourself in seminary, what is one of the things that you would have, if you could take the, the vastness of what you've experienced in the Anglican church now, but you couldn't share all of that. There had to be one thing that you would go back and tell your your former self, really lean into this, or this is a gift I want to give you sooner than later. What would it be of all the, yeah. the treasures that you've found? Well, I mean, this maybe this sounds a little bit trite, but I think I would want to encourage myself at that time to trust the tradition. Mm. Um, I was deeply distrustful. I mean, that's part of the Seventh-day Adventist story in me is that I was deeply distrustful of anything that looked like historic institutional Christianity as it I thought of it as dead and corrupt and it turns out that of course there there are many examples of how it can be dead and corrupt but the the, the tradition is the carrier of the life you know it um, mm. and I think that if you trust that the church of the first second third and fourth fifth centuries understood the gospel and they articulated it then it it behooves us to be students of them particularly mm. and to say what how did they understand the christian faith and mm. um how did they understand jesus i mean yeah. to, to, to know jesus beautifully and personally in in the midst of all that mm. i i just really long for that and i think i had i had a distrust that so i had to go through it i had to go through a kind of convoluted journey to get to the point where i could actually trust that the church knew what it was doing mm. historically, and I had I had to learn a lot of lessons the hard way, um, and I wish that I hadn't had to do that for the sake of the people I was leading as well too. I feel mm. like I I didn't form Christians as well as I could have as a as a as a pastor and a shepherd, and I myself um, had I still have so much to learn, and I think this is also the joy of it too, which is I just feel like I had discovered this endless treasure chest underneath the bed. That I didn't know I had there, you yeah. know, and so, yeah, I guess trust the tradition. Yeah, and I, I just I think it's probably goes without saying, but I think it might be helpful to articulate when we say you know trust the tradition or trust the church. I think what we're both saying here, and I th think what most would be saying without saying is 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 trusting the historical work and voice and leading of the Holy Spirit. Yes, and I would say, I mean, I, I want to be careful too with what I'm saying because I'm. Some people, some Christians have divided scripture from tradition and pitted them against each other. What I'm yeah. trying to say is that the scripture is the earliest written down authoritative layer of that yeah. of that tradition. And so it can't be in intention with the tradition. Yeah. But what I mean also is that, like, you know, I've heard Orthodox people say this, that um a hundred percent of the early church fathers were eighty-five percent Orthodox. <laughs> uh, which is a great phrase that reminds yeah. us that every single one of us have areas that 
maybe known to us or unknown, unbeknownst to us, lead us outside of what is actual the yeah. actual Christian faith. And so to read broadly within the, again, the early church fathers, for example, is to, to drink deeply yeah. from that, not to get hung up on one person yeah. uh, or the eccentricities of, of this direction yeah. or that direction. But also just saying that we're not talking about merely trusting a earthly human institution yeah. alone no, that's, no. that's devoted, devoid of the Spirit, but knowing yeah. that God did not leave us as orphans and that at the death of the, the apostles, the spirit didn't depart from the earth until yeah. you and I became priests or something like yeah. that. The spirit in the messiness of the ecumenical councils and and the early church and persecution and the dark ages and even the uh, the schism and the reformation that the Holy Spirit was faithful to be with His church mm-hmm. and to be there's kind of this authentic voice that we can find <laughs> in the in the church historic and so. Yeah. Not only do we need to listen to the spirits leading now, but we should also see what the spirit has said in the past yeah. and have that bring into dialogue with scripture and community and stuff to see where we can lead in the future, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think that it can be very popular to talk about listening to what the spirit is doing now um, without engaging what the spirit has done in exactly, the past. Yeah. And I think that's super dangerous. Mm-hmm. I think that's like the spirit of our time rather than the Holy Spirit. And, yeah. and so to, to not get caught up in that is... Yeah, it, it is It is also at some level, I should say, to distrust yourself as an individual, to mm. entrust yourself to the church, which is the living body of Christ uh, animated by the Holy Spirit, yeah. as you're saying, Joshua. And I think there's a way of when we study the historical church, even though it has not been perfect, you start to learn a little bit of the tenor of the voice of the Spirit. Yeah. So it becomes more familiar in the present. So you can distinguish between the, the Spirit of the age and the Holy Spirit. You're like, yeah. wait a minute this sounds familiar and I don't know why. Yeah. And there's, you know. Yeah, and the errors of the church repeat themselves over and over and over yeah. again. So it's, that's why it's helpful to recognize, oh, the errors of our age are not brand new. Yeah, they, they continue. Mm. Well, thank you so much for sitting down and sharing your Anglican journey with us. And I think next time we might bring in Father Kyle and yeah. hear uh, his, his journey as well. So thank you so much and stay tuned to the Eucharist podcast as we're going to be bringing you more more stuff, more sermons, more book reviews, or book talks, and more Anglican journey stories. Peace.